Lord, that's our heart tonight. We want to see you. We want to draw close to you. We want to know you better. And Lord, we know that you reveal yourself to us through your word. So Lord, tonight we ask that as we look at the living, breathing word of God, that you indeed would be our teacher. Give each and every one of us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. Lord, we know that none of us are here by chance. We've all been brought here tonight by divine appointment. You desire to minister to each and every heart. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. We're desperate for you, Lord. May you move in a mighty way that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It is great to have you here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Joshua 23. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, you do need one. Amen? Amen. If you're not reading your Bible at church, probably not reading it at home. That's what I'm thinking. That's just kind of me. Hey, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm exhorting you because I love you guys and just preparing you for Joshua tonight because he's going to be exhorting the children of Israel. Now to catch you up briefly, quickly, we come to Joshua. Joshua, the book of Joshua, they've entered in to the land of promise. They've crossed over that Jordan River, a picture or a type of all that God has for us, walking in the center of God's will, experiencing that spirit-filled life. Now we know that when they got to the outskirts of Jordan, the first time that the first generation wimped out. They didn't hear the word of God. Instead, they looked at their circumstances. I know none of us have ever done that, looked at our circumstances instead of looked at God. Amen? Well, the children of Israel did, and sadly, because of that, they ended up wandering in the wilderness, and they died there. But then, in Deuteronomy, they prepared the next generation to enter in. In Joshua, we've seen them enter in. And as they went into the land of promise, one of the things we need to remember is first they had to stick their foot in the water before the waters would part. So they had to step out in faith. And then secondly, once they got into this spirit-filled life, it wasn't that all their obstacles were going to go away. Sometimes we think if we walk in the center of God's will or we walk and obey God, that we're not going to have any trials. We're still going to have difficulties. We're still going to have trials. But the difference is the trials will be brought on by our obedience, not by our sin. And praise God for that. There's a huge difference. Now, one of them is a consequence of sin. The other one is a trial to bring us closer to the Lord. Well, we know that they entered into the land. They, they destroyed mighty fortresses along the way. They wiped out every enemy because God promised that they would. And then we saw in the last few weeks the 12 tribes being given their actual territory where they would dwell. And all 12 tribes were entered in and, again, were put in the place where they, again, drew by lot. But two and a half tribes, as we've talked about, settled outside of the land. They chose to settle for less than God's highest. Sadly, this is much of the church today. Deciding that it's better to be where it's comfortable than to be in the center of God's will. Better to be where it's easy than to be in the center of God's will. And, and sadly, we saw the two and a half tribes would miss out on God's highest. Then last week, we saw the altercation between those within the land of promise and those outside of it. The nine and a half tribes heard a story that the two and a half tribes had built an altar. You remember this, the text from last week, avoiding altercations, I called it? Well, they built an altar, and this was an altar that the nine and a half tribes assumed they were built in, building to have worship outside of God's real design and God's real place for them to worship the Lord. Well, we saw four potential sources of division within the body last week because remember that up to that point, all the attacks were coming from the enemy outside. Now the attack was coming from the inside within the body itself. The same is true today. There are attacks that come from the world, that come from the enemy, but there are also attacks that can come from within the body of Christ. 
And it breaks the heart of God that there be division among those he calls his children. There's few things that bother me more than to see my own children fighting with each other. Bothers me as their dad. I don't like it. You know, I'm there to protect them both, and here they are fighting with each other. And you know, the same is true for the heart of God. And so we saw four potential sources of division last week going on hearsay, rumors, taking a, a life of their own. We also saw that getting worked up even before we've checked out, you know, acting in haste is a cause of division within the body of, of Christ. Using the Lord's name loosely. God said, God told me, be careful when you say that. You better have a verse to back that up, amen? God told me, and then you follow that up with something, I want to see a verse to go along with that. And too often what happens, we, we throw that around a lot, and sadly, that's how all the cults begin. That's all the false teaching comes from, is God told me. Well, again, God does speak to us, amen? And God does lead us, and He does direct us, and He does tell us things. But He's never going to tell us something contrary to the Word of God. That's how He speaks to us. And then we saw bearing false witness against your brother. And it's sad within the church today, gossip is something that the enemy uses to bring division. Then we saw four marks of carnality last week. Making the statement that God knows my heart. Using your feelings over the word of God. That's a sign of carnality. Sign of a fleshly walk when you elevate your feelings over the word of God. But I feel. But but God's word says, but I feel. Guess what? God's word trumps I feel all day. Amen? God's word comes first, not what I feel or what I think. Blaming the Lord for your problems is another mark of someone walking in the flesh. You know, how can God do this to me? You know what? How could those words ever come out of our mouths? What has God done for us? Suffered and died in our place that we might have eternal life. How can we question, doubt, or blame God about anything? Now we need to come to Him when we're going through difficulty and cry out and say, Lord, I need your help. And that's certainly something He desires that we do, but certainly we should not be blaming God. And we also should not be blaming the church or others as well. Often we want to do that. The reason my walk is a mess is because, you know, I've had these Christians, people I've interacted with, and they just messed me up. And I just, I'm not going to fellowship anymore. What are you doing? You're elevating your feelings above the Word of God. Because God's Word says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. Amen? That's pretty clear. So we're to be in fellowship, not only so that we might be ministered to, but that we might minister to others. But when we want to blame it on people... And that's why I don't go to church. We've elevated our feelings above the Word of God. And then lastly, we saw them, those who decided they wanted to worship God in their own way. You know, I, I, I just feel close to God on the golf course. It's just a place where, you know, I just really meet the Lord on my surfboard. And that's just really where, you know, I, I'm having intimate fellowship with the Lord. And again, I'm not saying you can't have fellowship with God sitting out in the woods. You certainly can. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be in church as well. Amen. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't worship God God's way. He's the one that decides how we worship Him, not us. And He created us to worship. Now, we come to these last two chapters, and I said last Sunday and Wednesday to read both chapters for this week. Well, it's not going to happen. All right? We're going to look at chapter 24 next week. When I get to like 35 pages of notes, it's time to stop. All right? You got those chairs are way too hard, and your mind just won't take it. All right? So we're going to look at chapter 23 tonight. But in the last two chapters... We're going to see Joshua's final words to the children of Israel. And whenever you see somebody giving their final words to anybody, pay attention. Imagine if you were laying on your deathbed, you knew you were going to die, and all of your family members were around you, and they were waiting to hear from you. How significant would that conversation be? How important would it be to listen and to hear the words? 
Well, the people, the children of Israel have now been in, as we get to chapter 23, they've now been within the land for over 20 years. They've settled into the land, this land flowing with milk and honey, that picture of the spirit-filled life. And as we're going to see in Joshua's words, written 3,400 years ago, talking to these people that have settled into the land, that they have great application for you and I tonight. Especially for those of us who may feel like we've settled into our walk with the Lord. You know what, guys? That can be a dangerous place. There's a danger that over time, having experienced the blessings and the grace and the mercy of God, we start to take it for granted. You know, I've heard people say this before. I've, I've heard it said many times. Some guy will be a new believer and he is on fire for God. He's just so excited. He's been born again. He's saved. He's walking with the Lord. And I've heard other Christians say, oh, new believer. He'll settle down after a while. And you know what? Heaven forbid. Amen? Amen. We shouldn't be settling down. We ought to be firing up. Amen? Amen. The more we walk with God, the more we fall in love with the Lord, the more we ought to be a reflection of Him, and that light ought to be brighter and that flame ought to be hotter every single day we walk with God. But sadly, there is this temptation after time to settle into our walk. 20 years in, just kind of chilling with God. Yeah, that's right, I'm saved. I remember when that happened. Yeah, I see how excited he, I used to be that way, but I'm a mature believer now. I don't get all that excited anymore. I'm just resting in the Lord. You're napping is what you're doing. You're not resting. (laughs) Now, I want to say this. It can become common. We can become complacent. Our focus will start to shift off the eternal to the temporal. It can, we'll lose our proper awe and reverence and fear of God. Lord, make me more on fire for you than ever before. And God's desire is that we would not take for granted all that God has done for us in the work of the cross. All that God has done in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And all that God desires to do through us. Every good and fruitful thing that has ever come out of our lives. Remember again, that it's not that we should settle down as time goes on. But we ought to be firing up even more. Again, our, our, our light should shine brighter. So your years in Christ, as you grow in maturity, you should have a deeper love for the Lord. You should be more Christ-like. And again, many take their eyes off of the Lord over time, and others remain spiritual infants for a lifetime. I've met people that told me they're a Christian for 20 years. And again, I'm not being judgmental. And by the way, that's something that gets blown out of oh, you can't Don't be judging me, man. I'm sleeping with that girlfriend, but you can't be judging me. That's not judging you. That's the Bible. You shall not do that, not to fornicate, right? Don't be judging me, man, because I'm doing this or I'm doing that or I'm cheating or lying or stealing. Hey, man, don't be judging me. Take the beam out of your own eye, man. Don't be, right? But the point is, we're not to judge whether or not someone is saved. That's for God to do. But we can look at our lives in light of Scripture and we ought to be putting that mirror up in front of our face on a regular basis, amen? Because God desires that we walk in obedience before Him. He's not a no-fun bummer God trying to keep us from fun. He's a loving, heavenly Savior trying to keep us from harm. And again, to properly grow, we must feed on the right things. We must start to walk. We must exercise our faith and obedience. So tonight, that's exactly what we're going to look at as we come to tonight's text. The children of Israel have settled in. Joshua's burdened for them. He's going to gather all the leaders together as he's laying on his deathbed. He's got one final, you know, today's my last day. I'm going to go be with the Lord. And I want to share my heart with you guys before I go be with Almighty God. 
He wanted to deliver that one final address to remind them, to exhort them, to caution them, and to warn them from the heart of one who truly loves them and is burdened for them. So if you're a note taker, I titled the message tonight, Hold Fast to the Lord. Hold Fast to the Lord. And we're going to hear Joshua's words of wisdom as he makes his farewell address to these precious sons and daughters in the faith and you and I can learn how to remain faithful and fruitful within the the land of promise of our own lives as well as how to keep from becoming complacent or enduring consequences of disobedience. So again, if you're a note taker, we're going to look at four things in holding fast to the Lord. First, he's going to remind them of all that God has done for them. We need to be reminded, don't we? That was weak. We need to be reminded, don't we? Of all the things God has done for us, we need to be reminded. Second of all, he's going to exhort them to walk in obedience. He's going to caution them about getting mixed up with the world. And then he's going to warn them of the consequences of getting caught up in the things of this world. So, holding fast to the Lord, beginning in verse 1, he's going to first remind them what God has done for them as well as what he's ready to yet do. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old and advanced in age. A long time after. Again, it's been about 20 years now that they've settled in the land. Remember, they were excited before. We got to go into Jordan. Great anticipation. They finally enter in. It's a land flowing of milk and honey. No more manna anymore. No more wandering through the wilderness anymore. We actually get to settle into a land that we can call our own. This is wonderful. What a blessing. But after a while, we can, we can get used to the blessing. They've taken seven years to conquer the land, about 13 years now. The land's been divided. The people are going out to, to inhabit the land. They're settling in. They're removing the remnants of the, the people that had remained. And then it said, the Lord had given rest to Israel. Now, who had fought the battles? The people had. But what does the text say? The Lord had given rest to Israel. He's reminding them of what God had done. Guys, what have we done? Nothing. Apart from Him, we can do no good thing. Who gets all the credit, all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, or should anyway? God. Amen? And though they had fought the battle, and they had taken their swords out, and they had gone in and fought the giants, it says the Lord had given them rest. The Lord had been the one to defeat the enemies. It was the Lord who won the battles. It was the Lord who brought the victory. It was the Lord who had given them rest. The Bible tells us that without Him we can do nothing. We're simply hands and the tools in the hands of the Master. You've heard me talk about that, right? The drill bit that drill bit that takes away the pain in your tooth. We don't worship the drill bit. We don't thank the drill bit. We thank the dentist. Amen. And that's all we are as tools in the hands of our Master. And He alone should be the one who is glorified says there, from all the enemies round about. Guys, there's no foe too great, no giant too strong, no fortress too mighty for our God to defeat it with ease. Guys, there's nothing so great that God can't take care of it. And too often we walk around, but you don't understand what I'm dealing with. Again, Pastor Sai certainly talked about it. And and again, we're born again and, and it's a sanctification process. But the truth is that as Christians, we are new creations in Christ. And the Spirit of the living God lives inside of us. And we can overcome any obstacle or difficulty if we walk with the Lord and we let Him do it. Amen? If we say, God, I need your help. So there's no habit, there's no addiction, there's no struggle, there's no hidden sin too great for our God. None. 
And sadly, we don't want to, we want to categorize sin. Well, this sin's greater than that sin, and certainly the consequences of this sin may be greater than that sin, but all sin separates us from God, and it all had to be dealt with in the same place at the cross of Christ. And so for each and every one of us, no matter what your struggle may be, our God is greater. It says there, Joshua was old and advanced in age. Well, he was 110. So I would say that's pretty old. But yet at 110, I love this, Joshua, like Caleb, finishing strong. I so admire that. It's something that, I, even though I'm still a, a relatively young man, I still I, I admire finishing strong. I admire that we're not dialing it down or, or toning it down as men get older and women get older, but instead stoking it up. Serving God until His final breath. You know, in the church today, we follow the world's example in so many ways. How do we judge the success of a church? By worldly standards, right? How many people in your... There, that's the answer, right? So the more people you have, the more successful your church. Well, God didn't call us to gather people, but to make disciples. And so I'd rather disciple 50 than entertain 5,000. Amen? But when, if you try to disciple them, they're not going to stay for the entertainment. If they're there for the entertainment, they're not going to stay, and that's okay. God wants us to disciple men and women, to grow, learners, disciples, followers of God. But we judge success by worldly standards, and we attempt to conform the church to meet the world's needs and desires. We try to change the church so it makes it as comfortable as we can for the world. Now, I'm not, again, it's okay for it to be a place that is welcoming to the world, but we should not change what the church is so the world won't be convicted. The world needs to be convicted. Amen. And so do I, Amen. We need to be convicted. We need to be transformed. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. So here's another area where we mistakenly follow the world's example. Here's what I'm talking about. In the world, you have a time of schooling, a time of doing your career or job, and then you retire. And if you're really successful, you retire younger rather than older. He retired at 35. Ooh, right? That kind of thing. And people are really impressed with that. Retired young. Well, guess what? We try to follow that model in the church, and it should not be so. Give me one scripture of someone retiring from the ministry. Show me one prayer. And the Apostle Paul went off and went fishing for the next 40 years. You don't see that in the Bible. It's nowhere. You remember we looked at Caleb. Caleb asked for the land of the giants. He didn't say, give me the rocking chair on the, you know, the porch and the, on the, in the condo at the Mediterranean Sea. He said, give me the land of the giants. I'm 85. Let me go get them. I want to finish strong. The older we get, the more we've walked with God, the more fruitful our lives ought to be spiritually. Retire from work, but we never retire from our calling or our ministry. Our light ought to shine brightest at the end. Amen? And sadly, we, we get it all mixed up in the church today. Well, I've put in my time, served the Lord, now I'm going to play golf. Nothing wrong with golf. But you better be honoring God first. Amen? Let me give you two examples real quick. There's a man by a, a Greek scholar by the name of, his last name is Cato. Really, really well-known Greek scholar. One of the foremost Greek scholars of our time. He didn't start studying Greek till he was 81. I'm kind of glad he started. Because I've actually used some of his stuff. Ever heard of John Wesley? Okay, John, I love this guy. And John Wesley traveled over 250,000 miles, it's estimated, from town to town on horseback preaching the gospel. He wrote over 400 books, he preached over 40,000 messages, and he taught himself 10 different languages. 
I'm glad I'm not being measured by his standard. Amen? But you know what's interesting? You look at his journal, and at 81, he was angry because he could only read about 15 hours a day now and study because his eyes would start to give out at about 15 hours because he was now 81. When he was 86, he was upset because he could only prepare and teach two sermons a day. He felt like he was, you know, totally not being faithful to God. At 88 in his journal, he said he was upset with himself and angry because he found himself sleeping in every morning until 5.30. (laughs) You know what? He had a passion for Christ because he had a calling on his life. You know what? The passion doesn't die if you're truly called. Amen? God wants to stoke that passion within every one of us. Not this lukewarm, yeah, I'm saved and going to heaven, giving church a couple hours a week. But no, totally sold out and set apart for God and seeing every moment as an opportunity to worship and minister to Him. To start to see the world through His eyes, to have a burden for the lost. Guys, how many, how many of you have unsaved friends and coworkers? Raise your hand. If your hand's not up, where are you? Because you all have them, amen? Either that you have no friends and no job, one or the other. <laughs> But we all have unsaved friends and, and unsaved co-workers that need Jesus. And the number one reason you're there is to be salt and light. Eternal perspective, Lord, painted on my eyes to see the lost. Christians walking closer to God was the burden that was on John Wesley's heart. It ought to be the burden on every one of our hearts. Doesn't mean we're going to go out, get on a horse and travel from town to town and preach the gospel. But we all have a calling and we all have a gifting. And you know what? The passion was so strong, it didn't matter how old he got. Well, guess what? Joshua was that kind of guy. How old was Joshua when Moses turned the ministry over to him? 85 years old. Again, most guys, rocking chair recliner. Joshua said, okay, you're in charge now. Moses couldn't bring him into the land of promise. Joshua means same name as Jesus, only one who could bring him in, because Moses is the law. Law can't bring you in. Only Jesus can. And so it was turned over to Joshua, and he finished strong. He, hit the, he wanted to, you know what, I love this. I wrote this down. He wanted to hit the finish line with a burst of speed, not in a, not in a walker. Amen? He's like, I want to finish with a kick and run through the line into the arms of my Savior, not be laying around somewhere and just drool until I die kind of thing, right? You know what? God, God, use our lives. Stoke the fire. Make every day count. Because when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Burst with energy through the finish line. Not coast, not pull back, not reel in, not slow down. I don't get that. I don't see it in Scripture. Give me an example. There aren't any. All you see is a greater passion for the lost. Verse 2. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in age. So he calls for all the leaders. He brings them in, desiring to impart wisdom. This is his last day on earth. We're going to find out. We get later in in verse 14, I believe it is, where he's going to say, this is my last day. This is it. I'm going to go be with the Lord. Now you would think for a guy 110, been serving God, was Moses' right-hand man, was fighting battles, was wielding swords, you think he could take at least a day off. But he doesn't. You know what he says? Last chance I get to serve God before I get to heaven. Because when we get to heaven, it's over, guys, as far as a chance to reach the lost. Amen? We can't come back. This is it. This is our chance. It's that little dash between those two numbers on your tombstone. It's just a small amount of time that we have to serve God. 
He desired to impart wisdom, to continue to disciple them until his final breath, to pass the ministry on to the next generation. And again, we know how important those words are for those laying on their deathbed. You know, Jesus, in anticipation of going to heaven, if you read the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of John, you get to chapter 14 all the way to the end of the book, he's preparing them for when he leaves. The rest of the book... He's preparing them. I'm going to go away and I want to give the ministry away and I want them to be prepared. After his resurrection, he came back upon the earth and the entire time he was giving ministry away and preparing them for when he left. What was the last thing he said before he ascended into heaven? Go therefore into all the world and what? Make disciples of all nations. You know what? He gave away the ministry up until the very last moment. Jesus is our ultimate example, and Joshua is a type or a picture of Jesus. Because here's Joshua, last moments, wanting to give ministry away. Preaching the gospel to all creation, making disciples of all nations. That was the heart of our Lord, and that was the heart of Joshua. So now he's gathered all these people around. He's sharing his heart with them for the last time, and he wants to impart, again, as much wisdom as he can. Joshua wanted to pass on to the leaders among Israel a sense of what the Lord had been doing among them. And then he wanted to exhort them as well. Look at verse 3. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is He who has fought for you. Now you're laying on your deathbed. Chances are, if you're even halfway normal, you're expecting people to tell you how wonderful you are. Right? Last time people are going to see you, your family gathers around and they're going to all tell you how much they love you, what a blessing that you've been. And again, certainly I think part of that's appropriate. Joshua's not saying, okay, this is my last day on earth. Let me explain to you all I've done for you guys. Because, now who was it that fought the battle? Who was one of the two good spies that came back with the good promise, right? Who was it? Who was the one who brought you guys in when you were, you know, your mom and dad were whining and moaning and complaining and wouldn't fight the giants? Who said fight them? Who was it? That was me. Where's my gold watch? Right? I'm retiring. I mean, you know, Joshua did not do that. Joshua instead, laying on his deathbed, who does he give all the credit, all the glory, and all the praise to? He gives it to the Lord. Again, look what he says. You have seen all that I have done for you. No, you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you, for the Lord your God is He who has fought for you. Who was the one that led them into battle? Joshua. But he says, who, who was the one that fought for you? The Lord. Here's a man who is finishing strong because he's not carnally focused. He doesn't want to be recognized by men. He doesn't care about his accomplishments being noted or appreciated. Joshua begins his address by glorifying God, not speaking about the things that he's done. Again, reminding them of all that God had done. The Lord fought for you. The Lord won the battles. The Lord defeated the enemy. Yet there's still more that God wanted to do with them. Look at verse 4 and 5. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight, so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Now, God had done great works, but now he's telling them God's not done yet. By the way, if you're still breathing, God's not done yet. Amen? No matter how much God has done with you and in you and through you, he wants to do more. If he was done with you, it'd be checkout time. 
And Joshua's still breathing. This is his last day. God's not done with him, and God's not done with us. And so he tells, so for you and I, God has done great things in our lives, beginning with our salvation, yet there's more he wants to do if we will simply let him. God doesn't care about ability. One of the biggest lies of the enemy is to tell you you're not good enough. You're not educated enough. You don't know the Bible well enough. If you knew the Bible better, maybe God could use you. If you were, had been a Christian longer, if you were a better speaker, if you had more money, if you had more of an education, don't you love the, who the apostles were? Fishermen. Tax collectors. They were hated by men. Tax collectors. And these are the people God used. God has prostitutes in the line of our Savior. Why? Because he wants us to know he's not looking for ability, but availability. He just wants someone to say, I'm right here, Lord, use me. God was not done with the children of Israel in the land of promise. He still had more he wanted to do. So he said he divided the lands. We've been looking at the map the last few weeks. Remember the, 12, the, the land had been divided. But sadly, all these years later, they still had not gone in and fully occupied the land. There was still work to be done. They had to go in and accomplish all that God had done had for them. Now, listen, I guarantee you for everyone in this room, myself included, I may be at the top of the list. There's more that God wants to do in us and through us, but we need to let him. We need to say, here I am, Lord. Not be satisfied with where we are spiritually. Always desiring to grow more. Always desiring to be closer still to the one that we love above all else. There's more work to be done. There's more that God has called us to do. So how do we do it? You might say, well, how do I do it then? Well, okay, pastor, I believe you. I agree with you. How do I do more for God? Look at verse 5. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight, and so you shall possess their land. Guys, we enter into a partnership with God, if you will. God does the work. We simply respond. He says that God will expel them, and then what are they to do? Go in and possess the land. God will go in and wipe out the enemy. You just go in and take the land he's given you. God will go before you. God will make the opportunities available to you. You simply respond when he brings them. God had expelled them. It was a done deal. God always does the hard part. He always drives out the enemy. But at the same time, he desires that we would respond in obedience to what he's called us to do. Again, the response and the focus here is not on the great faithfulness of Israel, but the great faithfulness of God. Aren't you glad that it's not based on our faithfulness? It's on the faithfulness of God, not the faithfulness of man. My salvation is not based on my faithfulness, but His great grace. Amen? And so praise the Lord for that. But at the same time, we should go in and possess what the Lord has for us. The book of Joshua is a testament to what the Lord did on Israel's behalf in giving them the land of of promise. And so too, Jesus is a picture of what Almighty God did on our behalf, giving us the ultimate promise. Amen? The promise of salvation. So you shall possess. God's going to expel them. You go in and possess. We partner with God. We respond to the Lord. You want to grow spiritually? Start listening to God. Guys, can I, let me share my heart with you openly. Often people will say, I, I want to hear from God and I've just been praying and I'm not hearing anything. Okay, I'm going to Get on you, right? If you're not hearing, you're not listening. Amen? How does God speak to us? Through His Word, through prayer, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, right? And the hard part is that often people say, I'm not hearing from God, but they're not praying. 
They're not spending time in God's Word. And they're not listening to the Holy Spirit within them. Guys, I believe that I'm going to get to heaven and part of me, the Bible talks about wiping away every tear. We know we're not going to be grieving in heaven, but I I believe we might be momentarily when we go before the throne of God because we're going to realize all that we could have done had we only obeyed. You know what? I believe there's divine appointments every single day that we walk right by. How many believe that? Here's an opportunity, but I'm so focused on me, I missed it. Here's a chance. Here's somebody that divinely was brought into my life. Here's an opportunity to minister to a coworker. Here's somebody. You know, can we begin our day with prayer? Spend our day in His presence. Be led by the Spirit of the living God. And you know what? So we're walking so close to God, we can hear Him whisper. My heart would be if we drive by and there's a guy with a flat tire and God wants us to get out and help him, that we can hear His still small voice because we're so in tune with the Holy Spirit. Get out and help. Yes, Lord. Oh, but it's raining and I'm late. No, get out of the car and help him. It's not about your comfort. It's about God's calling. And so often we're looking for a ministry title and we're looking to, to be, you know, to go witnessing. Let's just be witnesses and let's just be ministering wherever we are. Instead of looking for a title or a position or a place, let's just be faithful wherever we are. That was certainly the heart of Joshua. The key to growing spiritually is responding in obedience to what God is leading and directing us to do. God does the work, you and I respond. So first, holding fast to the Lord, He reminds them of all that God has done for them, as well as what He was ready, what is yet to do. He still had more He wanted to do in the land. Look at verse 6. Now He's going to exhort them to walk in obedience. People don't like this very much when you tell them to obey. Is that a popular word? A lot of people take it out of their wedding vows. I don't obey. No, I'm just saying obey. What am I, a dog? I'm not doing that. I've had people tell me that. And, and, and I, you know, I do weddings. Well, do I have to have obey in there? <laughs> Ask your husband. I don't know. Here's the point. Why, you know why that's a bad connotation for us? Because we're prideful? Because we want our will, way? We want our will? And you know what? I don't want to obey a tyrant. But I love obeying God. Amen? Obeying the one who loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. Look what it says here. Therefore, be very courageous to keep, the law, to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Look what he says here about walking in obedience. He uses the word courageous. It's very courageous to obey God. The word courageous in the original language means to strengthen, prevail, harden, be strong, be, be courageous, be firm, to be resolute, to keep and do all that is written in the law of Moses. He wants us to be courageous obeyers. It's easy to obey God when we think it's going to benefit us. But what about obeying God when it means we might catch some flack? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys know the story? Daniel 3. One of my favorites. You've gone to our church very long. You've heard me refer to it many times. But you know what? When you hear the music, everybody bow. If you don't bow, fiery furnace. Does that take courageous obedience to obey God and not bow? It takes courage to obey sometimes. And you know what? They didn't bow. And I love it because they threw them in the fire. And when you're in the fire, who was in the fire with them? Jesus Christ. And King Nebuchadnezzar had to call them out of the fire. I love that. He threw them in and then he had to call them to get them out. He said, who is a God that will, you know, 
deliver you out of my hand, right? And then he's, come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's tune changed really quick because three people obeyed God. And we know that when they looked into the fire, there was a fourth one there in the likeness of the Son of God, and they had to be called out of the fire because it's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without Him. It's better to be in the center of the greatest trial in the world, walking in the center of God's will, than to be in a, on the cruise ship outside of God's will. Courageous obedience. Lord, I'm going to obey you if I lose my job. Lord, I'm going to obey you if I'm going to lose some friends. Lord, I'm going to obey you if it's not going to be popular with anybody else because, God, you told me, and I'm not worried about anybody else but my relationship with you. You're first. Now, again, we shouldn't come across self-righteous and arrogant. We should be loving and gracious. But, guys, this is not a popularity contest. There's only one person whose heart and passion we should be concerned with, and that's the Lord's. Following God and His Word isn't easy. It doesn't mean your life will be free of conflict, but God is looking for courageous obedience. It's not easy sometimes to have courage and obey, but you know what? You can ask God and He'll help you. Amen? You get discouraged? Ask God, Lord, help me. Obey all that is written in the book, it says there in the second half of the verse. Notice it doesn't say some. Obey some of what's in the book. The stuff that you kind of like. This is not a smorgasbord. This is the Bible. You don't pick and choose the stuff you like and leave the lima beans, right? You, you take all of it, amen? And too often we struggle because we're selective in which parts of God's Word we want to obey and which parts we don't want to. Then it says there, because if you don't obey, here's what's going to happen. Unless you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. It's interesting, he's quoting Joshua chapter 1. I'm going to read some verses to you back in Joshua 1. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. You can look at it later, verses 5 through 9. It says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For, this, for to this people you will divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all that the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe and do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know why we don't want to turn to the right or to the left? Because when we do, we're turning away from God's will. Walk in the center of His will. But notice, to know God's will, you must know God's word. We struggle to know His will because we don't spend enough time in His word. You know what? Satan doesn't care which way you turn as long as you turn one way or the other. I've often thought of turning to the right as turning into legalism, let's say. Becoming really legalistic. And all of a sudden, we've got to keep these 9,000 things to be right with God and going around and telling everybody else how... And the other side would be cheap grace. Just, hey, I'm, I'm saved. I can live however I want. It doesn't really matter. Going to heaven, got the get out of hell free card. You know, turning to the right or turning to the left, both of those bring harm to the kingdom of God and keep us from being effective for the Lord. Hold fast to the Lord. The third thing we see is going to caution them against becoming familiar with their idolatrous neighbors. Look at verse 7. 
Unless you go among these nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them. These false gods, he knew, God knew this was going to be their downfall. Does God know everything? What's the answer? Absolutely. So when God warns us of something, do you think there's a reason why he might warn us? Because he knows that our nature is to fall for that very thing. Every time they came within any distance of idolaters, what did God tell them to do? Wipe them out. And it seems unfair. Oh, why would God kill those people? That's just not right. You know why he's getting rid of them? Because he knows if I leave them there, you're going to become just like them. The Bible tells us bad company corrupts good morals. You become like those people you hang out with. You want to know what kind of person you are? Look at your friends. Amen? Are we napping tonight? I know those, uh, maybe we need harder chairs. We should put spikes in those things or what? Keep you guys awake? A little electricity, that'd be good. By the way, we have padded chairs coming in about three weeks, so don't be falling out, all right? Maybe we won't use them on Wednesday nights. I'm afraid this is not a good sign. Here's the thing. Joshua wanted them to keep a distance between Israel and the false gods of this world. He didn't even want them to know the names of their gods. Because he knew if he knew their names, if he knew their ways, they may begin to follow them. God has called you and I to be separated from the world. You know what? We're to be naive about the world. That's what the Word of God tells us. To be naive concerning the things of this world. We don't have to know everything about the world. We don't have to know everything that's on TV or every movie that's out. We don't have to know all of the the garbage that's going on. You know what? Sometimes I find out things and I wish I didn't know. How about you? Oh man, why did I got to know that? Get that out of there, right? Because it pollutes our minds, doesn't it? I want to be nice. People say, well, you've got your kids in this school and you're sheltering your kids from the world. You better believe it. All day long. How about it? Amen? Why? Because... They don't need that garbage. People say, we got to be more like the world. No, we don't. We need to be less like the world and more like Jesus. That's what we need to be like. And he's telling them, I don't even want you to know the names of their gods. I don't want you to not, if someone brings something up, you go, what are you talking about? I've never even heard of it. That is how it ought to be in the life of the believer who puts God first. Joshua didn't want them to even mention their names. And Ephesians says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done in secret. Don't mention, mingle with, or be knowledgeable about the false gods of this world. Can I even say this? Our, our, the Word of God will stand every test. Amen? But I don't believe that every one of us needs to go out and study all the other false religions. I, just don't, I believe some people are called to do that. I believe we need to know enough to be able to defend our faith. But I, you know what? I have, never, I have yet to read a page out of the Koran, nor do I have any desire to. Why? Well, i got the Bible in front of me to read. Amen? I, I'm going to spend my time in this book, in the truth. You know what? If you know this book, no matter which lie they bring along, you're going to know it's a lie because it will be measured against the truth. Amen? And too often we think, oh, I've got to read this, study this, and study that. No, it's just a gateway to the false gods of this world and not that I'm afraid of reading their books, because I know they're lies. I've got no problem with it. But the point is, I'd rather spend my time studying the truth. Then he says in verse 8, Not to bow down to the world, to be separated from the world, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. 
The word hold fast there, if you have an old, anybody here have old King James? Anybody? What is that word there? What's the word? Cleave. It's cleave. In the Hebrew, the word is the same word as in Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve were to cleave to each other and the two became one flesh. He's saying here, cleave to the Lord. Become one with the Lord. Be walking so closely to Him that it's like a husband and wife relationship because we are the bride of Christ. Amen? He's not saying, know about God. Believe that there is a God. Have a distant relationship with God. He said, be married to Him. Be cleaving together with Him. Be one flesh with the Lord. That is God's heart for us. Amen? I had a a youth pastor friend, he used to say that all the time. He used to say, are you married to Jesus? And we need to be married to Him. We're the bride of Christ. Not grabbing onto, but joined to as one. The marriage covenant of oneness was a symbol for God's people for that relationship with the Lord our God. And we too are to hold fast, to cleave to Him. You know what, guys? If God's not close to you, who moved? If you're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved? We do. God's right there. Does He want to have an intimate relationship with you? So much He'd rather die than live without you. Amen? He, he is willing to suffer and die to have intimate fellowship with us. And yet we get so busy doing everything else that we miss out on God's highest. Verse 9. For the Lord has driven out from before you the great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. You know what? Our God is an awesome God, and no one can stand against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is a faithful God. He's defeated every foe, every great army, every giant, every fortress that the children of Israel had faced. And you know what? Look at verse 10. One man shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. In Leviticus it says, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, you shall chase your enemies. They shall fall before you by the sword, and five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall be shall be before you by the sword, for I have respect for you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. Guys, we have nothing to be afraid of because you plus God is a majority. You, one, will chase 10,000 because our God is greater than any foe or any trial that we may go through. God is faithful and He will continue to be faithful if God is for us, who can be against us? Notice again, what does... Joshua, quote, to exhort his people on his deathbed. What's he quoting in verse 10? Leviticus, which is what? The Bible. Joshua exhorts people from the Word. Where should we be exhorting people from? The Word, not your opinion. Well, I think you ought to. What does the Bible say? Amen? Exhort me from the Word of God. I'll receive it every time, or hopefully I will. All Christians must be faithful to hide God's word in our heart. That's the only way we'll be able to exhort others from the word of God. For the Lord your God is with you. He fights for you. Almighty God is on my side. Man, that blows me away. He's, he, you know what? He knows every difficulty, every trial I've been through, and yet he continues to love me. Look at verse 11. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you what? That you love the Lord your God. We don't just appreciate God. We don't just believe in God. We don't just have reverence for God, but we love Him. Love Him. 
When we're in love with the Lord, we're automatically going to start wanting what He wants. In James, John 14, it says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. What's the first commandment? When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest of all the commandments? What did He say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the first commandment? Love God. It's amazing how when we're just loving God, everything takes care of itself. My priorities are right. My passions are right. My struggles I see in the right light if I'm just loving God. But if I'm loving myself or I'm loving this world, I'm going to struggle. Struggle. In Jude, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Notice the exhortation so far. He gave three of them. Be very courageous. Hold fast to the Lord your God and love the Lord your God. Each one of them is fruit of an obedient walk. As we walk in obedience, all those things will naturally happen. Last point. Hold fast to the Lord. He reminded them of all that God had done. He exhorted them to walk in obedience. He cautioned them against being familiar with the the idolatrous neighbors around them. And lastly, he's going to warn them of the consequences of turning away from God. Look what he says. Or else, indeed, if you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go into them, and they to you, know that for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you, scourges on your sides, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Is that a warning or what? Here's what he says, if you obey, I'll bless you. You disobey, you go back and start worshiping the false gods of this world, I will bring a curse upon you. Now, why does he say this? Because he loves them and knows that if they turn to idolatry, it will separate them from his love and his grace. If you go back from the Lord, from his worship, from his word, how in the world can anybody turn their back on God after tasting what he has done? We all do it. Don't we? Why do we? Because it's a spiritual battle, you guys. It's a daily spiritual battle battle don't you walk out from church pretty fired up walk out of church put your christian music on ready to go witness to everybody at work tomorrow <laughs> friday afternoon we're screaming at each other on the you know what i mean what happened we just get away from god so quickly don't we because we don't spend our time in his presence the lord is leading us one way and the world is pulling us another choose today whom you're going to serve guys Every day we make a decision. Who am I going to obey? Who am I going to follow? Who am I going to pursue this morning? If you cling to the remnant, the few remaining idolaters left unconquered, that sin that's undealt with, if you choose to hold fast to the Lord or cling to the world, it's that daily battle and we have to choose one. Then he says, making marriages with them. Can I tell you something again, just being real transparent with you? Man, we have had an incredible amount, and you know, it's not pointing at anybody because many of them don't even go to our church. But we've had so many phone calls about marriages just falling apart. I think I had six in one day. One right after the other. Many of them don't go to our church, found us in the phone book or whatever, go to another church. And it just was just so heartbreaking. But you know what's interesting? In every single case, they had one thing in common. They did not put God in in the center of their relationship before they got married. Some cases, people known each other days and got married. People had been, were still, I mean, just a disaster. We don't put God first, and then we wonder why it's a disaster when we get married. He's saying here, don't be married to someone who doesn't know God. It's going to be a disaster. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in common, you have no reason to be married. Amen? 
I don't care how many other things you got in common. If you don't have Jesus in common, you got nothing in common. You're unequally yoked. You're, you know what? You've heard me say it. You're dating a dead person. The Bible says they're spiritually dead. I know you wouldn't drag no corpse into your living room and introduce them as, you know, hey, here's my date, right? You wouldn't do that. People would put you in a padded room and throw, throw the key away. But you know what? We do it spiritually. We dress him up. We put a tux on the dead guy, but he looks really good. You know what I mean? We try to, we try to find, but he's a late, you know, no one's come along in a while and he's here. So don't, you know what? Don't settle for less than God's highest. Amen. God has something great for you. We don't want anything less than that. Marriage is more than just a physical attraction. It's the bonding of two hearts together. And if you're yoked together with an unbeliever, I promise you it's going to be a disaster. The Bible says to keep yourself unspotted from the world in James. We're to continue in God's love. We're to keep our eyes focused on Him. Now here's what I want you to see in verse 13, and we're almost done here. But look at this. If you disobey, what are the, what are the things going to happen? There's going to be a snare, a trap. You're going to be scourged on your side, thorn in your eyes until you perish. Let me read that again. Who does this sound like? Snares, traps scourges on your sides, thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land. That's Jesus. If you can't see that, read your Bible. Amen? That's Jesus in the Old Testament. Because here it is, guys. The punishment for disobedience is scourging, traps, thorns in your eyes, perishing from the land. And what did Jesus do? He came and took all of our sin upon himself. He that knew no sin became sin for us and took the punishment that you and I deserve. What a great and awesome God we serve. Don't you love how Jesus is in every chapter of the Bible? No matter where you look in the Old Testament, you're going to find the Lord if we just open our eyes. Backsliding hurts, thorns in your eyes, scourges on your side. It's the consequences of disobedience. Last three, four, three verses there. Behold this day, I am going the way of all the earth. He's saying, behold this day, I'm going to die. And you know in all your hearts and all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. He says, everything God has ever promised happened just like God said. And I can tell you the same thing. Amen. Everything God has ever said has happened, amen? Every prophecy, everything. And everything that God has promised you, He has done. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until He has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Just as all the good things had happened in the midst of obedience, so too all the cursed things would happen if they were disobedient. Now, I want to make something really clear. Are we still under the old covenant? What's the answer? No, we're not. So guess what? If you've been born again, you will never face the cursing of God. Now, your sin will have consequences, amen, but we will not be cursed by God because we've been saved already. We're born again. He paid the price. He took the curse upon Himself. We can no longer experience the faithfulness to curse Israel as they had to face it. As Christians, we don't face judgment, but consequences and divine discipline. As Christians, we, again, praise God by His grace, know that we've been forgiven. Last verse. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which He commanded you, what does He say, if or when? When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, He's already telling them, I know that you're going to blow it. 
When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which He commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you. You shall perish quickly from the good land which He has given you. He says when. Do you think it happened? What's the answer? Okay. In 722, we know they turned to idolatry. And in 722, after much patience, the Assyrians came in. They stripped the Israelites out of their clothes. They strung them together, and they put hooks in their jaws, fish hooks in their jaws, and drugged them through the desert to Assyria. That was ten of the tribes. In 586, Judah, the Babylonians came in, burned the temple, destroyed the city, and carried away captives, including a young man by the name of Daniel, along with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, which became Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God is faithful to His word, both in deliverance and in judgment. He said, I will deliver you. He will. I will bring judgments upon those who reject me, and He will. It all depends on what you're clinging to, guys, which kind of judgment you're going to face. If you're clinging to the Lord, cleaving to Him, joined to Him, having intimate fellowship with Him, you can look forward to intimacy with Him for all eternity. Amen? But if you're clinging to the world and hanging on to the world, you're going to face the same judgment that's going to come upon the world when it hits. So in closing, Joshua Last words. We're going to see next week he has one last covenant he makes between them and God. But this week, his last words, he reminded them of all that God has done for them. Guys, remember all that God has done for you. That's why we take communion. To remember the cross. Secondly, know that he has more he wants to do. Thirdly, receive the exhortation to walk in obedience before the Lord. Fourth, understand God's caution to not get so caught up with the world and lastly may we heed god's warning that we may not face the consequences of sin joshua is 110 years old he's zealous for god he's burdened for israel and he's finishing strong what a great example for us amen let's pray heavenly father we thank you and praise you for your word help us lord to hold fast to our savior not to hold fast or hold tight to that which is perishing but hold fast and hold tight to that which is eternal. Lord, we want to cleave unto you, be joined to you, have intimate fellowship with you, be your bride. Lord, we can't do it without you, Lord. We come before you in in humility and brokenness, brokenness, asking you to help us, Lord, to draw near unto you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.